0: where we ask and we pray these things in the name of Christ our King. Amen. On a more lighthearted note, I uh, have had the opportunity at various times in the last year and a half to substitute teach over at Central City Grade School. One of the days I was subbing with the sixth graders. I thought, finally, at least I'm going to get to interact with some that can actually give a little bit more conversation than, oh yeah uh, we're coloring this can I color can I draw this well lo and behold it's with another teacher but something interesting happened that day he gave th- during part of the day an assignment he had me helping pass out this sheet and it, it had a long list of tasks to do but what was interesting was what these, 22 questions and and to do had on them here's how some of the them went i'm not going to read all 22 but here's here's some of the assignment number 1 read everything carefully before doing anything read everything carefully before doing anything number 2 put your name in the upper right hand corner of this page number 3 circle the word name in sentence 2 Dropping down to number 12. On the back of this paper, multiply 703 by 66. All right, pull out a bulletin, start multiplying. He goes on. Number 14, loudly call out your first name when you get this far along. Number 19, if you're the first person to reach this point, loudly call out, I am the first person to reach this point, and I am the leader in following directions. Oh, really? Because here's number 22. Now that you have finished reading everything, do sentences one and two. Keep busy so that others will continue to read without disturbance from you. Do not make any sign to give a clue to your having completed the assigned task. How many of you would have done like some of these students and done every one of these and realized only once you got to 22 that you didn't follow directions carefully? That you missed the point of the assignment. Going through and multiplying. I I love math. I'm good at math, but it takes a moment to, to by hand, do 703 by times 66. You have to go through and write it out loud. I probably could take it in two minutes, but that's two minutes of time wasted of not following directions. The one who, who called out, I am the first person to reach this point, and I am the leader in following directions, they're a liar because they didn't follow directions. They didn't read carefully. Of course, we're not here to talk about an assignment this morning. But Christian, how many times does God's Word invite us to read carefully, instruct us what to do, but we don't follow the directions and then wonder why? Or we don't follow the directions, instructions He's given us specifically, but we interpret our own or add our own thoughts into it. In particular, when it comes to what is right. Worship of God, and that's what our text this morning is going to point us to if you have a Bible Go ahead and, and open up to John 2 verses 13 through 25 and and why you're turning there just to to give us a running start of where We've been so we as we've been working our way through the gospel according to John over and over again I've been emphasizing because it's the main point of, of the gospel according to John It's for the purpose of believing that Jesus is the son of God the Christ, the Messiah, so that we may too believe. That's that's been the main theme, and it's going to continue. But we've also been been looking at here over the last few weeks different ones beginning to bear witness to Jesus in this way. We see John the Baptist, Andrew, Philip, and ultimately by pro- close proximity, John the Apostle. He's writing this gospel so that we may believe. They're aiming to persuade us who Jesus is and to believe. But this morning, we begin to look at what does it mean to actually believe? Does it mean simply by our mouths we say we believe and that's enough? Or something more? And that's what we're going to begin to to unfold this week and over really the next three or so weeks as we turn to John 3. As we look at the text of being born again and and even the beloved John 3.16. What does it mean to believe? So let's look in part one of that this morning of John 2 verses 13 through 25 Hear The word of the Lord from John 2 verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making the whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Wow. John two sets up for John three in so many different ways. But here's what I think the main idea of this passage is. And therefore, doing the, the whole expository preaching of taking the main point of the text and making it the main point of the sermon. Here, here's Lord willing, what's the main point of the sermon? Those who truly believe in Jesus will be consumed with zeal to rightly worship the Lord in all his glory. Let me repeat that, and it's on the screen. Those who truly believe in Jesus will be consumed with zeal to rightly worship the Lord in all his glory we're going to unfold this in three parts this morning part number one a consuming zeal part number two a new temple and part number three a genuine faith a consuming zeal a new temple and a genuine faith let's look at first a consuming zeal we see in in verse 13 jesus is on the move again Uh, as we looked at last week John gives us markers of location and time the next day. Then he went to Jerusalem. So here it says in 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Previously, they had been there in verse 12 in Capernaum. Now, if you're a geography nerd and have a good study Bible, you'll notice something. Jerusalem is not actually above on a map. Of Jerusalem, or Jerusalem is not above Capernaum on a map. But what it's talking about is the fact that Galilee, where Capernaum was, set so low at sea level and Jerusalem set elevated. So they went up here to Jerusalem, the city which housed the temple for the Passover for this feast. That's all that means when it says he went up. It's talking about more geography than it is that a map of Mapa, north and south. So don't be confused if you're trying to keep up with that and and looking at study Bible on that. But he went up, here's the Passover, to, to take part in the yearly feast in which Jews would have traveled all over to come to the city of Jerusalem to go to the temple for this particular feast. But notice what Jesus finds as he goes up to Jerusalem. There in verse 14. In the temple he found those were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there the temple a place that is is to be sacred and holy Jesus finds what he finds the bleeding of sheep the lowing of oxen he finds the squawking noise of pigeons He sees tables filled with these money changers making exchanges. He finds all of this, and he becomes enraged. J.C. Ryle notes, he says, Nothing seems to have called from him, being Jesus, such a marked display of holy wrath as the gross irreverence which the priests permitted in the temple, notwithstanding all their boasted zeal for God's law. The religious leaders of the day, the priest of the day, would have guarded the law so strenuously and carefully, except in this moment. They were consumed with pragmatism. They were consumed with worrying about practical aspects instead of what God had instructed them to for his glory and honor. But why? Why why does this cause such outrage from Jesus? Think about it. A place in which to draw near to pray to focus on god is filled with the sounds of these animals the noise of it you city slickers out there maybe maybe this doesn't make a whole lot of sense but think about if you've ever been to the zoo and the noise of the animals not to mention the fact that these animals aren't trained like your little pet dog and cat to go find a litter box or, or hold it and go outside and let you know they're going to Release those feces whenever, wherever they are. This is filling the court of the temple, filling the smell of it. Growing up, it was easy to tell when we were getting close to, to my grandparents' dairy farm. The smell began to hit you of the cow manure everywhere. Of course, I knew it was coming. I paid attention, but my brother was always asleep in the back, but he was like, oh, we're almost there. I smell it. All of this is deteriorating, taking away from the purpose of the temple and the worship that was intended to take place there. You know, it's easy, though, for us to think about this. Okay, travelers are coming from all over. Why would you not want to help provide for them in the means of helping them in worship? You know, coming from all over, why would you not want to provide them with these animal sacrifices needed? Why would you not wanna provide them with the correct currency they needed to, to pay the, the half shekel of the temple tax? 2014, I traveled to Istanbul, Turkey to visit some of our IMB missionaries. On the trip over, I, I had a layover, I had a, a rolling suitcase and a backpack as carry-ons, and then I had a carry-on piece. The carry-on piece was a car seat for the missionary family I was going to see because they were expecting their first child, And quite frankly, they could have bought a car seat in Istanbul, but it wasn't U.S. regulation. They knew if they were to have a car seat there, they would like to have to bring it home so that they had a proper way of of protecting their child in the U.S. when they were home on furlough. So they had me bring this. Well... To be honest, when when you get out into Ataturk Airport there in Istanbul and, and have your own suitcase and, and your backpack pulling it, and then you've got to go pick up the, this heavy box, it would have been nice to have not had to bring it. It would have been nice not to have had to carry it through the airport, let alone the fact, then I have to go through security, be questioned, why are you an American here in Istanbul? What are you doing here? Question took several minutes to to go past because I was not a citizen of Turkey. So I go through all that, let alone then trying to exchange money and and get all that. I still have Turkish coins because it was such a pain of exchanging it. So pragmatism seems to make sense. You see see the, the temptation here to think practically. How can I help people as they come to Jerusalem to worship God? Let's provide these means for them. Is probably what these priests and religious leaders thought. But that's where the problem comes in. We don't follow instructions. We want to think more practically than we do. What's the point? What's the purpose? Just like the students we we began doing and, and so busy about it, we don't like, hold on, let's actually read the whole thing and see what does it look like to be a church? What does it look like to worship God? That's what these Jews were caught up in. They were so busy trying to to hit all the externals instead of looking back. What has God actually called us to, and what is He not? Just think about it here, even in the local church. How many ways are we tempted towards pragmatism? How many ways are we tempted to lose sight of the right thing instead of being consumed with zeal? Brothers and sisters, have you ever thought, why do we do things as a church the way we do? Or why do we not? Why do we have a call to worship? Why do we read scripture? Why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we sit under the word? Primarily because we find all of these in scripture. Scripture calls us together and assemble together in Hebrews 10. It calls us to sing to one another in songs and praise, both in Colossians and Ephesians. Colossians 3, Ephesians 5 tells us this, to sing one another, to make melody, both singing praise upward to God, but also outwardly to one another. That's one of the reasons we want to be about congregational singing, about hearing one another as we sing doesn't mean we we can't have and do different ways of types of music but but if it drowns out the singing then it's not helpful it's not actually being biblical no matter how cool it sounds how many of us think more pragmatic, pragmatically when it comes to that of evangelism we think you know what if I just invite somebody to church I've done my part of evangelism or maybe if I just tell my neighbor Hey, this is all what Jesus has done for me. This is how he's made my life better. We think that that practically is going to help. But we miss the point of evangelism. The point of evangelism isn't to tell how much Jesus means to you. It's to tell who Jesus is so that they may come to know the truth of him and come to the point of belief. It's one thing to tell what Jesus means, but guess what? If you come across somebody who's a Buddhist or a Muslim, they're going to say, great, you've got your Jesus. I got Buddha. I got Muhammad. I got my Hindu God. Good for you. That doesn't tell me why I need Jesus. You see what pragmatics does to the church. And this is the point of it all. And this is why we gather Maybe even one of the more dangerous things for for us as a church and and for churches in general right now is to be appealing to the outside world. We think pragmatically that if we just become something that looks cool on the outside, that's going to draw in all these unbelievers, all of a sudden we're going to be able to reach far more greater. What we don't realize is thinking that practically, yeah, it sounds good. It sounds appealing. It sounds like, oh, this is a great idea. But the problem is it undermines the gospel. It misses what the church is. It it begins to confuse what is the church and what is their purpose. Friends, if you've never thought about what the local church is, the local church is the assembling of brothers and sisters in Christ who are committed to the gospel and united in Christ. Friends, if you're here and you're not a member of this local church, if you are an unbeliever, we are so thankful for you to be here with us this morning. But the reality is, we're not here to appeal to you. Just like we're not here to appeal to one another's preferences. We're here to worship God in all His glory. The magnificence of who He is as the triune God who has come to save sinners for himself. We're to focus on what he's instructed us to do and to be about that. And for that to shape our worship. Because as we do, that's what builds up the church. That's what equips us and draws us to maturity. It's what equips us to do the work of ministry we're called to do, to be unleashed into the ends of the earth. And then begin to outreach towards others and invite them in but it namely is about God you see how pragmatics can cause us to miss the point and notice what Jesus does here look at verse 15 what he does with pragmatic ideas there in verse 15 and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple With the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers. And overturned their tables. Verse 16. And he told those who sold their pigeons. Take the things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus wasn't okay. And he said you know pragmatism. I don't like it. It's no big deal. It caused him to overturn these tables. And to drive out these animals. With a whip of cords. He wanted no part of it. It enraged him. to The point of acting like this. Now, the point is not for us to become so zealous and consume like Jesus that we begin to overturn tables and make whips and drive out those that disagree with us. No, that's not at all what is, is the point of it. But the point is for us to examine, are we missing what biblical worship is and exchanging it for pragmatism? What does the Bible actually teach us about worship? And how can we make sure we have a zeal for for seeking it and making sure that's what we're actually doing? I love what my mentor, Brian Croft, writes in his book, Biblical Church Revitalization. He writes, A church can gather together several times a week But if we don't make much of Jesus and make God's word center in the content of those gatherings, we no longer gather in the name of Christ and for his glory. For only when Christ and his word are lifted up does a church bring him glory and ultimately call upon his life-giving power to awaken the dead in their midst. I'm going to read this once more because I want us to get this. A church can gather together several times a week. But if we don't make much of Jesus and make God's word central in the content of those gatherings, we no longer gather in the name of Christ and for his glory. For only when Christ and his word are lifted up, does the church bring him glory and ultimately call upon his life-giving power to awaken the dead in their midst. True biblical worship starts by coming under the authority of God's word. By making it the very center of everything we do. There's a reason we often talk about hearing the word, seeing the word, praying the word, singing the word, preaching the word. All of this because we want to be a word-centered church. The word must be central. Jesus must be central. I don't care, friends, how many times you, you come to church and think, you know what? I wish... I just had more about the family. I wish I just had more about the end times and different things of how to to think through the political drift of everything. I I wish I had more of this. Let me back step. While, While again, it may seem practical to go towards these topical subjects, what is often missed? Jesus. How he's the answer. How he's the solution. I heard a, a preacher one time take Romans 12. If you're unfamiliar with Romans 12, it's Paul is shifting from doctrine and, and laying out all, all of the details of, of what in details the Christian doctrine life to now go into application of, okay, what now? The pastor took Romans 12 and talked about here's five things about your family, talking about the, the physical family. That sounds great. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus in that? He's the one. It's not men on me. If it's men on me, it's going to crumble. But if my heart's pointed to Jesus and him being the answer to all of God's promises, then who am I learning to rest upon? Jesus. My heart doesn't need to to know about, hey, you're going to see all your loved ones again, maybe. yeah You know, in in the midst of ministering to my wife and my family, in the midst of of death of a loved one, I need to know that Christ conquers death. He's going to be the one rooted in sound doctrine, rooted in that word of truth, not just vague generic statements. I needed something deeper to pull my heart up. Friends, this is what worship is all about. Seeing the excellencies of God so that we may draw near to Him. And this is what Jesus has the zeal for. So therefore, let us, as Central City Baptist Church, be devoted to what the apostles were in Acts 2.42, which says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And they did this daily. Friends, let us be about these things of the early church as we focus on right worship. Let these things drive us. Let us study the whole of the New Testament and consider what does it call us to as we gather. Maybe to stir one another—that's part of worship. To rightly sing praise and truths about who God is—that's part of worship. To have fellowship with one another, koinaia. True fellowship isn't just catching up on gossip. True fellowship is being so immersed in one another's lives that you know the highs and lows, that you're able to pick them up in their weak point, that you're able to encourage them through those by pointing them back to Jesus. That's true biblical fellowship. That's what biblical worship is. Central City Baptist Church, let us pursue that. But who is Jesus to redefine worship? Who is Jesus to, to tell us how our worship should be? Shouldn't we be able to do what we feel right about worship? Jesus gives us an authoritative sign, and that's where we turn in our second point, a new temple. He gives a sign. We're going to come back to verse 17 momentarily. But look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show for doing these things? They had that same question. Who are you to tell us how worship should be? We've been doing this a long time, dude. You're 30 years old here as you get started. You're a young, buck. who are you to tell us what we should and shouldn't do for worship? (laughs) Can you imagine the thoughts going through Jesus as he answers here in verse 19? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They think he's talking about the physical temple. This shows in their their response there in verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? You know, it's one thing if they thought he was talking about the physical, literal temple there in Jerusalem. No, nobody's going to raise that up in three days. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of detail. Look back in Exodus. Look back in Ezekiel and see the detail that would have gone into the buildings of these temples. The details, the measurements, all of that. We saw it all in our Exodus series. But notice what Jesus is talking about. First, his answer there in the fact that he says, destroy this temple. I looked in every one of the English translations I have, and all of them leave this vague. Destroy this temple. Who, who is the one destroying? Is it Jesus talking about destroy? Is it the, the crowd he's talking to? Is it other aspects of it? But the Greek, you know, our English translations are good. But there's a beauty of being able to be able to get into the original languages because it keeps me from kissing the bride through the veil. It allows things to clear up a little bit more. And here is one of those beautiful places that it allows to even be more pointed and clear. We see in the Greek Testament the word lusate. I know that's Greek to you. I'm not asking you to to be a Greek scholar. This lusate comes from the word, um, I'm going to go blank here because I didn't write it, luo. And it means literally to destroy, to loosen, to, to, to set loose. But here's what it adds, that lusate, that te ending. It's second person plural. If you're an English nerd, you know where I'm going with this. That second person plural is y'all. Y'all destroy this temple. And I, in three days, will raise it up. He's, he's calling out the religious leaders on what they're going to do. They're going to destroy the temple of his body. They're going to be the ones responsible for doing it. You just heard about this similar in the Sunday school as as Peter's sermon from Acts 2 talks about this. Peter, as he preaches there in Acts 2, is telling them, you're guilty of this. You Jews are the ones who put Him to death. Y'all destroyed this temple. That's my sign. But in three days, I raise it up. I, Jesus, raise my own life up. You want to know what authority I have? I, who am God of very God, I, who am the one who is God-made flesh, I am going to rise from the grave, and that's going to be the sign by what authority I do this. Because the fullness of God's glory dwells in me, Jesus is saying, and I'm revealing it to you. God's glory no longer fills the temple. It dwells in me. Jesus is what he's telling them. Of course, they don't get it. Not even the disciples get it in this origin. Because look at verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body there in 22. Then when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture, the word that Jesus had spoken. So it wasn't until afterwards the disciples even got this. You know, just a quick side application. It's okay if everything doesn't click at once for us. Or even as we do discipleship or evangelism. It's the persistent teaching of it and walking through it over and over again when it finally clicks. How many of you would have been lost in school had the teacher given up on you the first time you got a question wrong and didn't understand it. I guess as most all of us if we're honest. Jesus doesn't give up we keep teaching through that but more importantly here we need to see that this new temple his body and his rising from the grave defeating death is the ultimate sign of his authority to tell us what worship is all about because what was it that put him there in the grave in the first place back to verse 17 his disciples remember that it was written zeal for your house Will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal literally devoured Jesus to the point of death on a cross. He was so zealous for protecting God's glory that he opposed the religious leaders of the day in every manner. They accused him of blasphemy, of making his I am statements. They accused him of being a Sabbath breaker because he did good on the Sabbath of doing ministry on the Sabbath and healing those who needed it. They accused Jesus of much. And his zeal got him to the point that they arrested him in the darkness of night, led him to be accused before the high priest and then took him to Pilate and demanded he be crucified, accusing revolt, and it coming back on Pilate's head. They ensured Jesus went to the cross. The zeal of Jesus led to his death. But it didn't stop there. He defeated it by rising from the grave on the third day. This is the authoritative sign he has to tell us what worship is. Because he's the only one who got all the law right. Who death had no claim on. Friends, every one of us, death has claim on. Our sin has left us guilty. We are deserving of death. Death has a right to us. But it had no claim on Jesus even as he became sin for us. He swallowed that death up. As he rose, bursting through the grave, coming out of the tomb, rising anew, having those nail-scarred hands, showing them to the disciples, he shows I've defeated it all. Therefore, I alone have rightly met God's standard of worship. Does your standard of worship go through Jesus or does it go through you? Does Jesus have the authority of what worship is and isn't? Or do you and your preferences? Christian, that's something we need to ask ourselves all the time. We need to see these truths. But it's also a sign of encouragement to us. Because this very sign of Jesus rising from the dead is the very heart of what true worship is. That the Son of God, God Himself, would become man and go to this length to rescue us from our own sin and our own death. We don't gather to worship just because this is what's expected of us. We don't gather to worship just to to make us feel good. We gather to worship because God and God alone is worthy of such worship. And God has pursued us to the extent of giving his own son to live and die so that we may be made right with him. Friends. This should be why we worship. It's the very heart of our worship. The goodness of God. Steadfast, faithful love shown to us. That he's pursued us at these great lengths. Worship God because of that. But it's not just these things that draw us to this point. We also need to see what does it mean then to have not only a right worship, but a right faith. To simply our faith saying we believe lead us to the point of a right worship that's where we turn in our third point genuine faith look at verse 23 with me again now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing many believed in his name many said that they believed. very possibly even some thought okay this is the Messiah but what does that mean says they believed. But notice what 24 and 25 it had. That Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. These that are stated that believed. D.A. Parson rightly notes this. He says sadly their faith was spurious. And Jesus knew it. By Saying it to that it, it wasn't a genuine true belief, it wasn't grounded upon truth. Maybe believe certain parts, it was aided by these signs. Sure, it's one thing to come to believe through signs, but those signs can't be all that you believe about that person. Oh, Jesus, he, he did this miracle, he, he had this authority, he, he turned water to wine. Great! What does that really say about Jesus? If you can't get that it's saying Jesus is the one who is over all creation. You believe he did the sign? Great. What true belief is that? That that's going to hold you up secure? It's no belief. These did not believe. Calvin even goes on to say, he says, Let us remember, therefore, that none are true disciples of Christ, but those whom he approves. Because in such a manner, he alone is competent to decide and to judge. How can Calvin say something like this? Well, because what verse 24 said. On his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Friend, that evil thought that has crept into your heart over the last 24 hours or the last week or the last month that you think, man, if somebody found out of this, I would blush so shamefully. You think you've got it covered. Jesus knows. That evil intent that you intend to do or that harsh word you you withheld from saying to your wife or your husband, Jesus knows. And he needs no one to bear witness about us. So just because you're hiding something from your spouse or your family or your friends, and thinks, oh, nobody knows. They've not found it out. So how does anybody know? Jesus knows. He knows what's within us he knows everything about us from our our deepest darkest thoughts and feelings to the most visible action he knows it all there's nothing hidden from him therefore he knows and understands a heart that is actually believing in the truth about him and resting in that belief alone so no he's not going to entrust himself to one who doesn't rightly believe in him so many Think that belief is something, oh, I believe. I believe what? You believe Jesus is a good moral teacher? Does that save you? No. So what if he's a good moral teacher? Atheists will affirm that. Jesus is who he says he was, the Son of God who came away to take or came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. That's what we must believe in. True belief isn't a matter of never having a struggle and fight for that belief. True, genuine belief is a call to rest. Jesus knows my deepest, darkest sin. He knows my most evil and cruel thoughts that no one else knows. And he's invited me to come to him, to acknowledge that truth. I have no standing. I have no standing before him apart from what he offers me of grace. That's belief. Resting in Jesus so efficiently that you're saying, okay, Jesus, you know it all. I'm laying it bare before you. I'm acknowledging my sin. I don't deserve your grace. I deserve your wrath. But I'm going to rest in what you promise. If I come to you, if I come to you, it will be easy because you bear it. Is that the kind of belief you have, friend? I hope so, because that's biblical belief. If you believe in Jesus just enough to escape from the depths of hell, that's not true belief, that's fear of hell. If you believe just because it's what's expected of you in your culture, in your family, that's not belief, that's cultural pressure. That's conforming to a culture, not the Son of God. That's not resting in him. Friends, what do you believe in? I hope it's that Jesus is the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That you will rightly believe in him. And know because if you're clinging to that truth of who Jesus rightly is and what he came to do, then you can rest that he's entrusted himself to you. The signs of that are the gift of the Holy Spirit and the works of the Holy Spirit in your life. Rest in that. No, you're going to continue to fall short again and again. But keep clinging to the truth. Jesus is who he says he is. Keep clinging that your standing is in him and him alone and not yourself. Friends, this is what true belief is. This is what leads us to our right and true worship of God. Hoping in a Savior who has defeated death once and for all even as our family this week will say goodbye to Darcy's grandpa, to, to Bob DeFino. Even as they say goodbye, we can stand because we know Jesus rose from the grave. We can be comforted in the fact we know he has trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for his salvation. And therefore, we look forward to the day when he will rise again with Jesus, with a new body, and worship him. Where no more tears and sadness and sorrow exist. Let's hope in that kind of hope. Let's hope in that kind of salvation. And let's rest in it. Let's pray.